Hey, everybody. Welcome to Beyond Grill with me, Robert Young. My guest today is Mary Lentz Everett. And Mary uh, owns the organization called Backstage Recovery LLC. She's a CEO and founder. Um, and Mary was uh, addicted to Oxycontin. And it wasn't that she was somewhere and, and took it and, and um, you know, was going to try it out. She uh, is a type 1 diabetic and she struggles with rheumatoid arthritis. So she was prescribed this medication and it had a hold on her for years. And the last thing she was on life support and full kidney failure. And once she got out of that, she was like, I'm done. I've got to take control and I've got to break this. And, you know, she took the steps to to break it and break the cycle. And from there, she started these organizations, which is very unique um, take on it. And she does have a very unique um, take and very informative um, story that uh, to where she is today. So sit back. Um, it's a really good story. And um, you'll learn a lot from this episode and uh, give yourself a hot cup of coffee sit back and enjoy the show take care hey mary how are you hey how are you thank you so much for having me today i'm so oh. excited to talk to you so Mary Lentz Everett is joining me today and she um, runs Backstage Recovery, LLC. And um, tell, as we start, tell the, the audience a little bit about what that is and what you do. Um, backstage Recovery, we provide VIP recovery support to um, entertainment artists, professional athletes, high-level executives, and regular people who come to us and they want uh, specific support. And VIP actually stands for VIP as we know it, but it also stands for versatile, intentional, and prepared. And we believe that we need to provide very specific client-based solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not all the same. And recovery is not a one-size-fits-all thing. And right. so we really, we need to begin to uh, look at each client um, and what their needs are. So uh, we're really happy to be able to provide that to the people that come to us. So that's how many, the short version. How many people do you have working for you? How many people do I have working for me? Yep. I've got sober, uh, uh, sober companions, uh, personal assistants. I have a, um, a media, social media person that works for me. So we've got all kinds of people. Working Good. For and you can do this nationwide. I can do this globally. Yeah. Yep. It's mm -hmm. so nice. The power of, uh, of zoom and internet and all that, that yeah. you can reach out. Do you do a lot on uh, Zoom or do you do uh, a lot more face to face and go yeah, and meet we people? We do a lot on. We've done a lot on Zoom as the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Like we were able to shift very easily into Zoom because a lot of our clients were off tour. They were, you know, not doing what they were normally doing. So you know, Zoom worked really well for us in the pandemic, and people are starting to speed back up and get back into 
work life. And so we are, you know, we're starting to kick back into normal gear, normal gear, which is nice. Where are you located? We we're we're based out of Virginia Beach, Virginia. So we're on the East Coast. Okay. Did you grow up over there? I did. Well, kind of. I'm a Chicago transplant native. That's where I went to high school and junior high and then went to college in Birmingham, Alabama. Got my graduate degree in Virginia Beach, Virginia and have been here since. Okay. You're like mm-hmm. pew, pew, pew. Yeah, I was all over the place. I'm all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you like living there? Is that I do. Okay. I do. My kids are, I've got one child, one daughter that just graduated from high school and is going to Clemson. And then another one that is a sophomore. So as soon as she graduates, I may relocate at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But right now I'm East Coast based while she finishes high school. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Where do yeah. you want to relocate to? What's on your radar? Um, my radar is, I don't know, New York City or L.A. maybe. Oh, yeah. So west Coast, maybe. Yeah. OK. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it out West. I love visiting New York. Love it. I'm I love the city. Than I am an L.A. girl. I'm not yeah. a huge L.A. girl, but yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens. So yeah. I'm open. I'm open Good. So. Good. Did you, um, so you grew up in Chicago, um, and I grew up in Michigan. So I was just over the mm-hmm. other side of the lake, um, yep. where it was good. I've been down here in, uh, the Charlotte area for almost 11 years. I love it in the South. Yeah. Charlotte's yeah. awesome. Charlotte's yep. really cool. Um, but, um, so you've got your backstage recovery program. What what led you there to start um, this? Well, I um, I entered recovery almost four years ago, and okay. um, you know what led me to recovery was a full uh, crash in my life. I ended mm-hmm. up seven days on life support for full kidney failure. I'm a type one diabetic and I was prescribed opiates and I had a serious opioid addiction. They were doctor prescribed. So I'm part of the national, you know, epidemic. The Hulu dope sick show is on right now. I was part of that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that uh, community of people and I was prescribed fentanyl, oxycodone, oxycontin, clonopin, all at the same time, by the way. Wow. <laughs> what would they prescribe that to you for? Um, uh, for pain, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis, for um, uh, diabetic neuropathy, for all kinds of things that I was going through at the time. Okay. And I was so whacked out that I wasn't following my type one diabetes and my kidneys went into full failure and I ended up on seven days of life support. And, um, I managed to miraculously survive that. And I came out and, um, I had a spiritual experience while I was in the hospital that virtually changed my life. And I've never been the same since. Okay. And I woke up from that and said, I am an addict and I need help immediately. And I had a sponsor before I left the hospital and I hit the ground running when I got back. I am one of the rare people who 
has not been to rehab. And as I send people to rehab, because it's one of the things I do, um, I'm jealous of that because yeah. <laughs> um, rehab is such an awesome time to kind of recenter where you are, take stock of your life, get new tools and come out of that and hit the ground running. I just went to three to four meetings a day for the first year and did everything I was told to do and hit the ground running. So um, it was full on and it was my job. It, I, I looked at it like my job. So, that, I mean, that is that's an incredible story. And there are probably so many people out there that are battling this today that it was brought on by pain medication that was prescribed to them. And I've had countless stories of people that are close friends of mine that battled this. And a lot right. of times people battle it silently because they don't want to say, I'm addicted to opioids. I'm addicted to this painkiller because now what am I a junkie? I'm not right. a junkie. I, right. but I can't get off of this. And Hopefully, the more we talk about it and the more we get that message out there, we'll let people know that it's not your fault. You need help. Right. Yeah. And I think that was my my biggest thing, too, is the shame behind it. Like, I, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I knew six months before I ended up on life support that I had a problem and mm -hmm. I actually went into my doctor sick that summer before I ended up on life support. And I said, how am I going to get off these? Like, I feel like my life, I, I had no quality of life. I was isolated. I was sleeping most of the time. I was not the mom that I wanted to be. I was not the wife I wanted to be. I had no friends. Like I just had no quality of life. And, you know, he just looked at me and he said, you're not ready to get off yet. And I knew, yeah, I knew that I, there was no way I could get off alone because yeah. without the medication, you know, I was getting dope sick. I was, you know, I was going into withdrawal when I didn't have the medication. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's, it, it was, um, it was bad. And I knew, you know, for a long time, I would say, I, I'm not addicted. I'm physically dependent on mm -hmm. the medication, but I'm not addicted. And, you know, there's a fine line between physical dependency and, you know, just straight up, um, you know, addicted. And, and when I got into recovery, I realized, yeah, you know what? I really was, I really yeah. was addicted and my patterns showed that. And I think the thing that I would say to anybody who's listening to this and they're wondering, am I addicted? Am I not addicted? If you're questioning it, you probably are mm -hmm. and it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, you know, we need to end the stigma around this, you know, that um, there is a quality of life beyond taking pills or wearing a patch. And what I didn't understand 
being a pain patient. And by the way, uh, I still have pain today. Um, I'm, I, that did not negate the fact that I still have pain. So, you know, a lot of times we say, well, if people are addicts, then they don't really have pain. Mm -hmm. If they're sick or if they're, um, addicts, then they're not really sick. Well, that's not really true. Um, I'm still a type one diabetic. I still have rheumatoid, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. I still have diabetic neuropathy. I still deal with those things. But what I found out was that the pain medication was actually making the pain worse. And it sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like, well, why would pain medication actually make pain worse? But what it does is, is it resets your brain to not be able to handle pain on its own without pain medication. And so um, using different tools, using different methods, um, researching different things, I'm able to live a life like I, I didn't even know this was possible. You know, I run a worldwide organization. I'm a mom to two teenagers. Um, you know, I look 15 years younger than I did uh, when I was on meds. And if you're questioning that, go to my Instagram page <laughs> and scroll prior to 2018. And I can promise you, you'll be like, wow. So, you know, it, there is a life beyond this. And, you know, I truly believe that, you know, opioids are for end of life terminal illness only. And that yeah. for those of us who, str who struggle with chronic pain, there is another way for us. And I yep. believe I have personally found that for myself. So. That's crazy. Um, now, when you started your recovery, where did you, how did you reach out or where'd you find your support person? What was well, your avenue? At the time, my um, now ex-husband had, 20 years of clean and sober time. And so we were, he was already involved in the AA community. And okay. I, I went actually as an addict through AA, um, which I think is hilarious because, you know, I, I just decided that's where I felt the most comfortable. The, yeah. the, the principles work the best for me there. So, you know, I kind of um, knew where to go and I knew at least where to start. Yep. And, you know, I just had the honesty and the open-mindedness and the willingness and then just the sheer desperation that I didn't want to end up there again. Again. So I was willing to just at least try something different. And I think that's the beginning of the process for those of us who, um, you know, any of us who get to a change process in our lives and we're like, you know, I really, I, I just need some, this is not working, whether I'm, you know, I don't like how I look, I'm overweight or my marriage isn't working or, you know, we get to a point in our lives where we get stuck and we keep going around the same mountains over yep. and over and over. There comes a point in time where we have to push a button and we have to get outside of that and we have to take a chance and do something different. And this was what I did. And what so, was, you know, so I, I listened to a lot of stories and everybody says they try to stop and they stop and they go back and they stop and they relapse. 
But when I listen to the stories that people have found somebody that they can rely on or they listen to or they start to go into rehab and they start to lean into those principles and those teachings and that shifting of your mindset, Mm -hmm. that's when it seems like they start to come out of it. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I do. I do absolutely agree with that. And I think there comes, a, you know, I think it comes down to one word. It's a, it's, it's absolutely one word and it's surrender. And there comes a point in time where you realize what I'm doing isn't working. This is not working for me. Like whatever it is, like my way doesn't work. And what I knew was that I ended up on seven days of life support. So what I was doing wasn't working. I didn't need to analyze it. I didn't Mm -hmm. need to figure out why it wasn't working. I just knew that did not work for me. And step one says I'm powerless against drugs or alcohol and my life has become unmanageable. It's the first step that we get to where we say, yeah, I am absolutely beyond powerless against whatever it is I'm facing right now. And my life is unmanageable, which means my way doesn't work, which means I'm going to have to try something completely different here. And it's the first step of just throwing up your hands, waving the white flag and saying, I, you know what, maybe your way works. And I, you know, when I entered the rooms, I found a, you know, I found a lot of people that were happy they were sober. They were living good lives. They were not, uh, they, they were identifying with me because they had also taken big L I call them big L's big losses in life, big F's (laughs) big, you know, F ups in life. And so you don't walk into those rooms and, you know, everybody is showing off their perfect social media pages. Yeah. When you walk into those rooms, people are like, Oh yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I've done that. I can, and that's the only way you get into those rooms is <laughs> you have a big loss. So it's changing the stigma of, I have to be perfect to, you can't be perfect to get into this life. You have to take the surrender. You have to take the loss. And then we get to live the life of our dreams. And yeah. that's pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. How long have you been um, sober? So it'll be four years in February. Okay. So not really long. Yep. How long? So I asked this question, how long, you know, it's been four years. Uh, is it still kind of in your mind every day? Like, ugh, you know, I still am unsure or are you like, like, boom, how long did it take to get to where you're like, wake up every day and, and away I go, don't think I was, about it. I was pretty much all in from day one. From the get go. <laughs> Good for I mean, you. Honestly, like there, and we're going to talk about a situation later on in, in our, our convo here where, you know, that was again, proof that I was all in, but you know, I pretty much knew that I didn't want to live the way I was living anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've had a lot of, um, life gets lifey. That's what we say in the rooms, like stuff happens. I've been through a divorce in the last four years. I've moved out of my house in the last four years. My, you know, I've changed 
careers. I, you know, I've had some really, you know, I had a huge family drama happen in the last four years um, in my extended family. And there's been some major traumatic events that have happened in the last four years. And what I know is that without my recovery and my sobriety, I can't make it through those things. And drugs might temporarily for 45 minutes help me feel better, mm -hmm. but I'm just going to have all that stuff waiting on the backside of that high. So it's really not worth it. It's what we call playing the tape through. So if I take this pill, I'm going to feel better for a minute and then the high is going to wear off and then I'm going to feel crappy about what I just did and still have to face all of this anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's just learning the tools of, how do I manage life? Um, and, you know, a lot of us aren't used to doing that. So yeah. it's, a, it's a process of learning. And that's why we have people immerse themselves in, so, you know, changing your people, places, things, getting a sponsor, getting a home group, working the steps, doing service work, because this, you know, um, being, uh, you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol, it changes your brain chemistry. It changes how you deal with life, how you do things. So we have to change all of that to be able to then put in a new way and map out a new brain pattern to how we deal with things. But definitely, yeah, I've never looked back and, you know, I, I've never thought to myself, um, a, a narcotic would solve this or yeah. it might be good. Like good. I, I, this never has been the answer in four years. So what was your calling that when you finally realized that I'm going to, I'm going to help people, you know, I'm going to create this and create the backstage recovery. So one when of did our, you feel that was your mission. So one of our pillars in um, recovery is, um, helping others. So we, we feel like we can't keep what we have if we don't give it away. And so I was lucky enough to have sponsors very early on who thrust me right into doing things and chairing meetings and making coffee and, you know, helping other women, um, you know, doing things very early on. So I got very active in, in the recovery community. And one of the things I did pretty early on was to go serve in sober tents and music festivals. And I have family members who are close to musicians and stuff like that. But I, I really, um, you know, I, I did, um, you know, went to these sober tents that are set up in some of the largest festivals around the U S some of them were here and they're just places where people who are clean and sober can go and get support because music festivals are full of drugs. They're full of drinking. They're full of, you know, behavior that we don't really want to see sometimes in early recovery. So there are mm -hmm. tents there and they're set up by a organization called Harmonium. And my mentor, one of my mentors named Sean Brickle uh, started, was one of the founders of this. And he passed away this last year um, unexpectedly, which was really, really hard. But oh. I worked one of my first sober tents here and I was running backstage for some reason. I can't remember why I was backstage, but I realized we had sober tents in Gen Pop, but we didn't have anything going on 
backstage. And I thought, you know, these people are, you know, this is their job. They're working and they're doing, you know, they're, they're back here, you know, getting ready to work and we should be providing um, support to them while they're working. So that's the sober tents were for the people coming to watch the show. That was their space Mm -hmm. to go to. Okay. I kind of thought that that was for the performer. So that's when you realize, okay. Yeah. So that was kind of the first idea I had that, um, and it kind of started, I was at a, a, a festival that was in the middle of nowhere and it was out in a field and I was talking to a security guard that was guarding like the backstage area and he actually was in recovery and we, I was talking to him about the fact that we were working the sober tent out there and he was like man it would be so cool if we had something back here for us and it was like the idea just dropped mm-hmm. and it was like backstage recovery and so it was kind of born then and I LLC'd it a month later and started um, promoting it and so you know, then we added, um, you know, uh, professional athletes to it and we added, um, executives to it and, um, a sober living to it. So it's just kind of expanded as it's gone out and okay. it, it has taken on a life of its own. So it's pretty cool. Now yeah. going from giving them a safe space, um, is there now, where they're coming and you're, you guys are helping them overcome? So there's a lot of different arms. So we okay. do, you know, we can do backstage support um, at festivals, tours, games on set. That's one aspect of it. And that really kind of died during the pandemic because nobody was doing that. So what I was doing a lot of during that time was coaching people one-on-one. So that is a lot of what I do as well is meet with people one-on-one and coach them through their own personal process. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, mentorship and coaching and just walking with people. Um, You know, the word with, it's such a simple, small word. Um, I was in my own recovery meeting last week and we were reading out of the big book, working with others. And I was like, you know, I'm going to look up what the word with means. And it means going the same direction, um, accompanying. Um, and it, it doesn't say working at others. It means working with others. And so, you know, a lot of what I do is just, um, share my journey, you know, what's worked for me, um, and then use my training, my certifications, um, what I've, worked really hard, you know, cause once I, um, did all of that with backstage recovery, I started to get licensed and certified and did a lot of training to be able to know how to coach people. So, okay. uh, you know, that's vital. Uh, we don't just like launch out and do stuff and have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's kind of critical there, Yeah. but, um, you know, I think having that knowledge plus, um, uh, the, 
just the fact that I am a recovered addict. I've been where you've been. Yeah. It's my best qualification. You know, it's the thing that means the most to the people that I work with because it's great if you've got a therapist or a caseworker out there that loves to work in the field. But if you don't know what this is like, if you don't know what it's like to detox off of a drug or alcohol, if you don't know what it's like to be frightened in early recovery or, you know, the things that frustrate us or the things that we have to learn, the, the basic early skills that we have to learn in early recovery, then most of us don't want to hear you talk. (laughs) Most of us aren't going to relate to you very well. So I think that that's the thing people love the most about our conversations is that it's real. It's raw. It's exactly what it is right now. I mean, I'm not really doing anything different with you right now than I would do with a client that I'm sitting across and talking to. So it's that. And then Working with families is a big deal as well. Um, you know, we do um, interventions. Uh, yeah, that is- was my next uh, question. How how yeah. well do the interventions work? Are they, you know, because I don't know if I was struggling and I didn't think I had a problem. And then all of a sudden you get kind of bombarded by people that love you and they're only trying to help you. but you know, or do you get those or do you, and, and I'm sure you get the others that are like, thank God, like, thank I'll God. I'll tell you right now, um, knock on wood and thank you to God for this, but I have a hundred percent success rate mm. with the ones that I've done. Uh, no one has said no, nobody has not gone to treatment. No one has not stayed in treatment. Um, we've had a few people that have, um, you know, I've wanted them to stay a little bit longer than they've stayed, mm-hmm. um, but they've gone and they've stayed. And the ones that um, my my oldest ones are are all now over a year sober. So that's a really big deal. Yep. And, um, you know, I would say that the reason why they work is because I was trained to do them the right way. And I was trained by just a phenomenal guy named Ken Seeley. And Ken Seeley is the A&E interventionist. If you watch the show, A&E Intervention, he's the guy. Yeah. Okay. And so he's out of Palm Springs and he has a certified case manager and interventions training. And it's six mods, like six different months of, of weekend trainings. And you got to go through all six of those and then take a big test. And what he does is he teaches people how to do these. And he has three decades, well, over three decades of clean time himself. And he's done hundreds upon thousands of these. And so he's teaching people how to do these the right way. And so there is a way to do it. There's a method to it. There's a, you know, a system to it. And when they're done the right way, they work, they work. So So if somebody was thinking about doing that for a family member, they should probably reach out to a professional. Yeah. So you would reach out to myself. You can reach out to Ken Seeley. Um, You know, there's a lot of them out there, but, you know, I'd look for somebody who has a record of doing them well. And 
uh, reach out and ask the questions. Um, how do I, how do I go about doing this? And the cool thing about, um, you know, the way that I do it is that I, you know, I start with a family, you know, we're starting way before the addict knows anything about it. I'm working with the family. We actually do the actual intervention. They say, yes, we send them to treatment. I'm still working with the family while the client is in treatment I'm working with the client in treatment. And then when the client comes out of treatment, I'm working with the client out of treatment. So there's never a point in time where I'm not working with the client. And that gives us a huge success rate where, where normally, you know, all of those people are separate. You have, you know, the interventionist is separate, the rehab separate, the recovery coach is separate, and no one is linking together. And the family's just kind of in the middle going, what is, what What's do we do next? What's going yeah. on? Okay. So I'm kind of the person that's holding that all together. And that's kind of a new method. And that's something that Ken and I really agree on. And we work very closely um, to, do that. He has a rehab also in Palm Springs. So I send a lot of people to Palm Springs so that, um, and work with rehabs who will allow me to have that kind of contact with the client and will work with me while they're in treatment because it just doesn't work any other way. Now what's the, the rate of relapse? I mean, the rate of relapse is awful. (laughs) The rate of relapse for normal people is, you know, one out of every four people is going to relapse. Okay. And the rate of relapse uh, with just abstinence-based methods, meaning, you know, you're you never touch anything again as long as you live, uh, is about ninety-five percent. Okay. And the reason I ask that is to kind of give some understanding to family members that are trying to help whomever that is addicted, that it may not go the first time and you got to keep, you got to keep it on and you got to keep helping. Yeah. I, I think, I think the thing that helps, um, to lessen that rate of relapse is that, uh, number one, the the family has to get into recovery. Um, we don't just have an addict um, who is the problem. If there's an addict in a home, I don't care if it's a crack house or um, a whorehouse or God's house. If there's an addict there, there's normally a you know a system around the addict where that is that is allowed to grow. And so once we take that addict out of the system and we put them into rehab, we have to figure out how we can clean that system up. So when they come back, it doesn't look like that again. So, you know, the whole family has to get into recovery. They have to get into Al-Anon, Alateen therapy, their own recovery coaching. Everybody has to do something different for it to look different long-term. Okay. And so that, that I think is the biggest key to why I've seen the clients I've worked with change is because people get a picture of the fact that "Mm, we all have some issues here that we need to work with. Normally there's, there's a number one codependent who's cleaning up, up after the person's mess. They're not calling them on their 
their uh, behavior. They're not calling themselves on their behavior. And there's just a unbalanced thing that's going on in the relationship. So, you know, um, codependency to me is the number one drug on the planet. We've got somebody who depends on someone else and somebody who likes that person to depend on them. And that is where addiction breeds right there. Uh, That's it. Just perpetuate the problem in there. So when Uh. we take that person out and we put them into treatment, we need to work with the person who's normally used to feeling good. They're getting some payoff from taking care of that addict or alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And they'll normally say to me, I hate this. I don't like it. It's awful. I don't, this is horrible and I don't like it. And I'm like, but there's a little bit of a payoff here. Yeah. So that is something that is worked through in therapy. It's worked through in coaching. And just like the addict needs help for their drug of choice, the codependent needs help for their drug of choice, which is the addict or the alcoholic. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned something early on was the difference between being addicted or dependent. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you like view to give somebody a a perspective on the difference between the two? I don't think it matters. I, I, I honestly don't. I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Okay. I don't think it mattered whether or not I was addicted or dependent. I think all that mattered was what my life looked like. My life was unmanageable. I was sleeping around the clock. I wasn't showering. Um, I I, I wasn't grocery shopping. I wasn't going to my children's events. I, I wasn't doing anything. And that got perpetually worse. And what I will say is that, you know, addiction never gets better. It it, it never gets better. It is progressive and it's fatal. So so, so your point was more like, you can say you're dependent on it because I need these, I need these to feel better, or you can call it addicted one way or the other. It's affecting your quality of life and it's affecting you. So it doesn't matter what you want to call it. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because people can make that excuse. Yeah. You know, Hey, mine's. And I believed that I a hundred percent believed I was physically dependent and I wasn't an addict, but my life, the the quality of my life was horrific. And Mm -hmm. I remember a doctor telling my parents, and I've got great respect for this doctor. He's, he's, he is one of the only addiction doctors in this area. And he told my parents at one point, he said, you know, this pain medication is making her pain worse. And I just thought he was a wackadoodle. Mm -hmm. I was like, This is being given to me for my pain. This is the only thing that's making it better. And how dare you say that this is making my pain worse. But it wasn't until I came off of everything and my eyes started to open and I started to feel better and there was a bounce in my step that I realized just how detrimental that was to my life. And like I said, I am not pain free. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot less of it today than I had at the end of my crash in 2018. Okay. Yeah. So I got one thing. So what, tell me about um, the harm reduction. 
Mm, yeah. Okay. So harm reduction is, um, it's very uh, controversial right okay. now in the recovery uh, world. And basically harm reduction is we are doing anything to lessen the negative social, um, environmental and physical effects of a drug or a drink on a person. So a lot of times, you know, I'll have somebody who comes to me and, or I'll have a family member that comes to me or um, I'll have the client themselves and they'll come to me and they'll say, I don't like that my life is unmanageable. I don't like my quality of life. I don't like how this looks, but I don't think I can be abstinent for the rest of my life. That's not something that I feel like I can do. And the best, the best uh, example we have of this in the media right now is Demi Lovato. She is on harm reduction, as is The weekend. And, you know, Demi Lovato, interestingly enough, ended up on full life support in 2018 as well. And she was using um, street drugs. I, I don't remember exactly what she was on, but she was on some heavy duty stuff, mm-hmm. ended up on life support got back into recovery and she will um, have a drink on occasion and she'll, she'll use some weed on occasion and they're not her drugs of choice. And um, I have clients who are off their drugs of choice. Um, They're former alcoholics um, or they're opioid addicts and they're not alcoholics and they'll use THC or they'll use, um, you know, or they'll have a drink once Mm -hmm. in a while. Um, They're able to do things in moderation because of the, programs that they're working. And my view on this is, is, is personal. And I'll tell you why it's personal. And um, if you listen to any of my podcasts, you'll know why it's personal, but as a type one diabetic and somebody who struggles with pain. um, So I, I went full abstinence for the first probably 17 to 18 months. And I do believe I'll, I'll say this right off the bat. Number one, harm reduction does not work for all of us. And this is very personal client by client by client. So I'm going to put that out there right now. It's not, you know, it's not something that all people can do. Secondly, I will say that I feel like there does need to be a period of full um, abstinence just so that people can figure out what their needs are and get some of those tools, the recovery tools on board before they're switching things out because there can be transfer addictions, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I used to use opioids and now I'm going to stop that and I'm going to go to alcohol or, you know, I used to use heroin and now I'm going to go to a prescription drug because it's prescribed by a doctor. So as a coach, I like to see people come off whatever they're on for a full period of time before they add um, anything back onto their life for the system. So 17 months into my recovery, um, I had, you know, I, I was running hard. I was doing lots of meetings, lots of trainings. I was, you know, getting certifications. I was, uh, you know, I started backstage recovery and my pain, which I still had because I'm still a type one diabetic who has, 
you know, a lot of different conditions was still there. And my life was becoming unmanageable, not because of drugs, but because of pain. So Mm -hmm. I got my support team together, my doctors, my sponsors, my coach at the time, my husband at the time who had a lot of recovery behind him. And we started talking about THC and it was Mm -hmm. like, this has never been my drug of choice. I've never been anybody who's used pot ever. I'm not a fan of it. It's not a high I'm going to go after. Mm -hmm. What, um, uh, is this something I should give a try to? And I decided to try it. Uh, they were all aware. Everybody was all, you know, informed watching me, walking through it with me. And that worked really well for my pain. And it has worked well for my pain. It's not something I care about at all. Um, You know, in fact, I don't think I've used any THC in probably about 10 days because I just haven't needed to. Okay. So if I need it, I use it. If I don't need it, I don't use it. But it's not the kind of um, intense... Like uh, when I was using narcotics, it was an intense desire and need. Like how many pills do I have? Where are my patches? If my purse got stolen, my car got broken into, I was going to hunt you down, find Mm -hmm. you and kill you if you stole my stuff. Like I don't care today. You know, it's not that same, you know, intense level. So harm reduction is literally the point of it is to get people to a lower level um, of using. So we have somebody who was on life support, me, mm-hmm. um, you know, not using what they were on, getting their life manageable. And then if there are issues and problems with that particular person, how can we add something to their life that will help that? Or if they feel like they can't, be completely abstinent, can they do something in balance? Yeah. Can they do something in balance without going off the rails? And this isn't something that they just go willy nilly. Uh, It's something that is very much watched by a lot of people. Yeah. And I will say too, like for people that are not, um, you know, they're not drinkers. Like if you had, um, Uh, If we had an alcoholic, I would never do harm reduction on that person. Like I would never tell, you know, an alcoholic to go start drinking again. Like that's just not going to happen. But if you have somebody who is not a true alcoholic and they're just overusing alcohol, because there's a difference, there's a Mm -hmm. difference between somebody who is a real, real alcoholic and somebody who's just overusing alcohol, there's a way to actually really look at how you're drinking. And that is, you know, you have a glass of wine, you have protein before you have a glass of wine. I'm just using a glass of wine as an example. You have a clean source of protein, a glass of water, you have your glass of wine, and then you have to repeat that again before you have another source of a drink. And this keeps people from getting trashed or smashed. And most people don't want to do that. Like most people who are, who are drinking with the idea of, I want to get smashed or trashed are not going to follow the harm reduction rules. Right. Right. Yeah. I had to, you know, and this is on a, a different level, but I used to, I smoked and I know I can never have another one 
Like, right. I liked it. I liked it. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm telling it's on a lower level, but every day I counted out how many I had. I made sure I never went without them. I right. always had them with me. And, um, you know, so that's one I, I could never do it again. And using smoking as an example, like, you know, if you've got somebody who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, you know, uh, using harm reduction on that would be, you know, we're going to go from a pack to, you know, reducing that by five cigarettes in a week to another five the next week to another five the next week. And what we're trying to do is reduce the harm. And if mm -hmm. they can't go completely smokeless, well, then can we use a jewel? Can we use something that is that is less intense and less harmful? You know, can we use organic cigarettes as opposed to, you know, non? Yes. So we're looking for different ways to reduce the harm. It doesn't mean that it's gone. And we right. all know abstinence is better. It's best. Mm -hmm. It's best case scenario. But for most people, you know, they're not in that 5% that can just quit and never do it again. Got and it. that feel that feels hard to a lot of people. It feels like, well, why, you know, when do we rate life? And, you know, we have people that will relapse. They'll have like, you know, two drinks, you know, a year and they'll feel like they have to go pick up a white chip again. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's that intense. It's yeah. that intense to be abstinent or nothing. And this is more, I'm more concerned about what does your life look like today? Is it better or is it worse? Are you improving or are you going back down the slope? So I'm constantly talking about, uh, to my harm reduction clients about, you know, how their lives look. Yeah. Um, how did your week look? How did your substance use look? Why did you do that? Is it, that's, that's an uptick from the week before. So let's look at why you did that. And yep. what was the surrounding of that looking like? And so we're constantly evaluating instead of just don't drink and you're good. Yeah. We're constantly looking at somebody's life and why they're doing what they're doing. That's a, that's a different perspective on it, you know, because everybody wants to draw the line and they want to say, nope, done. You can't. And, and some people know that that is the line, like, no, I cannot do that. If I have one drink, I have 15 drinks. Right. So, you know, and some people, like you said, are like, I know I can't never do it, but right. how can we reduce the harm? Right. So and in another very personal way, I found out that this actually can work. And so April 15th of this year, uh, I, I was um, going to a client's house to pick something up and I rang the doorbell <laughs> and their uh, 170 pounds um, bulldog rushed me from the door and came like jumped at me, mauled both my legs and ripped my thumb off on the doorstep. And the first thing that I thought of when I looked down and I saw that my thumb was off, wasn't my thumb is off. It's, oh my gosh, I'm an opioid addict what is this going to do to my recovery? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in a very personal way, I knew that 
there was going to be some sort of pain medication involved because my thumb was hanging off. The bone had been bitten through. There was going to be surgery. You know, there was no way there's going to be no way around that. This was the reason that pain medication was created. So, um, you know, I was in the hospital and uh, I remember them just, you know, they were trying to just tack up my thumb because they couldn't do surgery for like two days. So they were, they were just, you know, trying to just put it somewhat on. And the nurse was like, you know, we need to give you something in your IV. And I, I was, my dad was there. My, my ex-husband was there. And I just was, I was devastated Mm -hmm. because I've had no narcotics. And at that point it was like, three years and two months. So it was a little bit over three years. And so they were putting it in my IV and I remember feeling it at the back of my neck go uh-huh. in and, you know, I just was thinking, you know, am I going to like this? And we hear all the time in AA about the phenomenon of craving, like the second you get it in your system, you're just going to be off to the races and oh my gosh, you're going to want it again. And you're going to just, that's it. And I remember feeling it and being like, I don't, like this. I don't, I remember how this feels and this is not my jam. Uh And, you know, I had to take some stuff, but I worked really hard. I still have the pad of paper in my uh, drawer in my kitchen where I wrote, literally wrote down every dose Um, what my pain level was, where it was in my thumb, did I really need it? And I was constantly checking my motives, talking to my sponsor. I was in a meeting 24 hours after my thumb got bitten. So it wasn't even put back on yet. And I was in my 930 morning meeting. So, Mm. you know, and I was off, off the pain medication pretty fast, pretty dang fast. Yeah. And so I know that this can work and I know that it is circumstance by circumstance and client by clients and really depends on the person's willingness and honesty with themselves. You know, I had to be real honest with myself. It was like, Mary, do you, you know, is this pain that you can take some ibuprofen and get through it with, um, or can you, um, you know, is this something you really need it for? And yeah. I think those are big. Really mm-hmm. Yeah, those are big things to really yeah. think about, you know, and being honest. And do I really need this? And, and I wasn't, I, can I get never allowed them to give me any of my drugs of choice. Yeah. Like oxycodone, I was like, no. Um, anything, anything major, I did not allow them to give me. Um, I didn't allow them to give me anything over like a Norco or a Tylenol 3, anything I knew. And I wasn't taking any more than one of those every six hours. So I knew it wouldn't do anything mm-hmm. to make me high. Like it just really wasn't going to do much of anything, but to dull the physical pain, which is what it was there for. Yeah. So, you know, that took a lot of work. It took a lot of, of work to get my, to remap my brain into this is why I'm taking this. And this is why I'm not taking this. And this is why I need it. And this is when I don't need it. Yeah. And, 
you know, that takes a lot of support and a lot of remapping your brain. And um, so there's a series right now on Hulu called Dope Sick, and it's all about the opioid crisis, Big Pharma, the Stackler family who created OxyContin, and the seriousness that we have found ourselves in as a nation over this. And you know, for anybody that's out there that's struggling with this, I mean, um, number one, you know, my heart goes out to people that are struggling right now because the struggle is real. It's, it's real, it's powerful. And, you know, I didn't want to live like that. Nobody wants to live like this. Nobody wants to end up an addict. And Mm -hmm. so love and grace to you today. Like, We love you. <laughs> We're here for you today. And um, just know that there's hope, that there's hope and, and there's a way out. Yeah. And um, if you want a way out, uh, you know, there's reach one. out. Yeah. Reach out. Yeah. Did uh, So where do you see yourself, you know, in the future? Where, where are you looking five years from now? Um, you know what, just wherever God has me with whoever he has me with, you know, I, I think that, um, where I am is beyond my wildest dreams right now. So I, I never could have imagined this mm-hmm. at all. I mean, ever could I have imagined that I would be sitting where I'm sitting right now? Like I, sometimes I'm like, how did I get here? Like <laughs> I mean, to get to, um, be in, you know, certified case management, you know, an intervention training this last weekend and help Ken Seeley, you know, teach students. Um, like I remember sitting in my chair, in my home, fully addicted to drugs, watching that show, watching him. And that was, that was four years ago. So to be sitting in a class with him teaching is just beyond my wildest dreams. So, you know, and to get to work with the families and the clients that I work with and do what I get to do is such a, it's just beyond an honor and a privilege to have a purpose in my Mm -hmm. life today. So whatever, whatever God adds to that is just gravy at this point. (laughs) (laughs) this is crazy so so how do people how do people find you so um my my cell phone number you can you can call it directly it's 757-735-2377 my email is mary.backstagerecovery at gmail.com we're on instagram we're on facebook um and yeah, you, we, we're, we're kind of all over the place right now. So um, we're trying to infiltrate a lot of places and just working hard at it. So good for you. Thank you very much. Hey, I appreciate you sitting okay. down and talking to me today. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to meet you and yeah. to spend this hour with you. Very so. good. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Beyond Grit with your host, me, Robert Young. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. Tell somebody about it. You can find this podcast on all major podcast platforms. And be sure to tune in every Wednesday for another exciting success story of somebody going beyond grit. Until then, take care.